Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, Crime Landers. You are in for such a treat today. Today's guest has to be probably the soundest man in the business. He is just such a lovely person, Des Bishop was one of the first people to ask me to support him and he has always been so so encouraging since day one and he's a real champion of people Des and I am mad about him he is such a lovely guest especially because we actually had to record this episode twice yes not once but twice because the first time I rocked up and I didn't have a microphone and it turns out I actually don't really know how to do a podcast because it, yeah, it materializes that you have to record the conversation and that is where I fall down. So the second time round, uh, he was very helpful. We also had to enlist the assistance of Stephen Mullen. So what I'm saying is it's taken three people to make this podcast, myself, Des Bishop and Stephen Mullen. And I'm very grateful to their mutual assistance. Look, one of these days I will find out how to record a podcast, but who is the time? Come on. Uh, a very interesting episode as well today. A really, really, really fascinating story. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Quick disclaimer, as ever, that some details here might not be to everyone's taste, but we do strive to discuss these topics in a human and empathetic way. If you have enjoyed the episode, I would absolutely love if you could recommend us to a friend or, you know, perhaps rate or review us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or just even share us on the socials. It really helps in terms of building our community of crime landers. And without further ado, here is your episode with the one and only Des Bishop. Enjoy!
welcome to Crimeland. My name's Julie J, and this week I'm talking to the one and only... Des Bishop. ...about the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. Des, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, And I have to say, just in case you think I'm diving straight in here, I do do a very gushy insert at the start, but I do that when the person isn't here because I feel like it's kind of listening to your own obituary. Right. You know what I mean? And like you're kind of, like, like I hear ha- towards the past tense, Des was a great guy, like that kind of thing. So I'm going to do the gushy beginning, but you're not going to be here for that part. Okay, that's fine. So that's like... I don't have to sit through the uncomfortable thing of like, what would you say are the best attributes about yourself? Yeah, you, you no, know. I mean, nobody needs, because I, do you know, I find that, have you ever done a podcast and somebody at the top, like they're kind of gushing, you know, they have a nice yes. lynch out. You have to sit there and wait. While it's very well, hard to listen to, isn't it? Well, especially when they usually, they usually get one mistake. <laughs> and then you're like, am I an asshole? And I just, uh, actually, that was 2007. <laughs> You know? I know, every now and again, I even, I, what was I doing once? Oh, I was doing the Guilty Feminist podcast and as my intro, they were like, winner of the Forbidden Fruit Award 2016. And I just thought to myself, I need to update my blurb. The Forbidden Fruit Award? I know. Is that a thing? Do you remember the Forbidden what, Fruit Festival? What, you didn't get festival? mud on your shoes or something? <laughs> what, 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 what is it? It was like a comedy search festival and I just thought to myself, it was on in Vicker Street and I was like, Julie, you really need to update your bio. Yeah, seriously. I mean, the Forbidden Fruit, no disrespect to any of my Forbidden Fruiters, and they're a lovely crowd. But like the comedy tent of Forbidden Fruit is just people coming in for, from the rain, basically. Yeah. They're just hey. waiting for that acid to hit, and they come in and they sit down in the tent for a few minutes. Like, I don't think we should be announcing this as an accolade, but look. Hey, The Guilty Feminist is one of the biggest podcasts in the UK. It's great that they will forever know you. I know, <laughs> as the winner of the Forbidden Fruit Award. Well, I love The Guilty Feminist, the and is amazing. The Adam and Eve Comedian Award. <laughs> Honestly, me. Note to self, update the website. Okay, I'm going to do that okay, later. Go. Des, Focus. I'm going to dive right in, if that's okay. Yeah, I can't wait, because I don't know anything about this. I love that you didn't Google, Des. You're the best Well, you, you told me not to. Well, I mean, I feel, yeah, I look, and this is no disrespect to the more knowledgeable guests, but I do think sometimes it makes for a better podcast when people aren't in the know. Okay, great. So Michael Rockefeller was born in 1938. He was the youngest son of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and the newest member of a dynasty of millionaires founded by his very famous great-grandfather, of course, John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest people he's ever lived. Michael was... So he had a twin sister called Mary... And obviously his dad was like this big businessman or whatever. Now, Michael was a bit more of an artistic soul. Like he was a bit of a dreamer. You know, he wasn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily a business guy. He loved art. And one of the things he used to do when he was a kid, he would always go visit art dealers with his dad, Nelson. So his dad, Nelson, was very into art. as kind of like a sideline, bit of a hobby. Classic billionaire behavior. Classic billionaire behavior. And he really, really picked that up from his dad. You know, this love of the arts. He went to Harvard and he graduated in 1960. His dad obviously expected him to go straight into business, but he really wanted to do something more and maybe something a bit more creative. And really, I guess, wanted a bit of adventure, which is understandable at that age. Yeah. And what, 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 what was the, what's the adventure thing to do? Uh, was it the 1950s? Well, I guess doing the maths on it. So he graduated in 1960. So okay. it's not quite the swinging 60s. Okay. It's early, yeah. It's <laughs> early. So he, one thing that did spark his interest, his dad had recently opened, now this is a bit problematic, but 
at the time it was called the Museum of Primitive Art, which is obviously a very problematic term. Right. But Nelson, uh, you know, he kind of wanted, I suppose, to draw attention to things like Aztec, you know, African art, Mayan art, that right. kind of thing. And one thing, even though the term is problematic, primitive, you know, we would all like, you know, we would, would all kind of be a bit ick about the term. Like Nelson was very clear that he didn't want, I guess, up until that point, this type of art. So say like Aztec art, you know, Mayan mass, that kind of thing. They would have been studied rather than admired. Right. Almost so, as if they were just uh, cultural artifacts rather than art. Exactly. So Nelson was like, I really want us to look at this, you know, art and admire it for what it is, which is beautiful art. Can so, I, can I yes. ask one quick question just to clarify? Of course, jump right in. You said Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York, but obviously that hadn't happened yet in the 60s, right? Oh, I thought he had been governor at that stage. Uh, well, he wasn't governor when he had the child, right? I'm going to double check that. That's Just a really check, good question. Just double check, because I got confused because uh, Nelson Rockefeller's kind of a famous governor because he brought in the Rockefeller laws. But I'm yes. pretty sure that they didn't happen until the 1970s. And I know I said I didn't know anything about that, but I just want to make sure that we, we know that this child wasn't raised with his father being the governor, I believe. But Okay, no, I'm going to look that up now. We're just... Uh, just, just, to, just to have it clear in my mind. No, no, no. Listen, believe it or not, uh, I'm not that great on New York governors, the timeline. So we're just waiting for the old internet now. Edinburgh Wi-Fi. We love oh, you, no, Edinburgh, but the Wi-Fi is I... pretty glacial. Okay, he was the governor from... 1959 to 1973. Oh, right. Okay. So, oh, but so he was a 70, but it was, I didn't realize he was that long. Okay, that is cool. That's a long time. That's what confused it? me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is a long time. Um, so, basically, anyway, so Nelson had this kind of sideline, you know, this bit of a pet project, this museum. And Michael said, look, let me run the museum. Let me go off and find you art. So this guy called Carl Hyder, who was a student of anthropology at Harvard, he said, look, the thing with Michael was he wanted to do something that hadn't been done before and bring a major collection to New York. This was his goal. So Michael at this point had already traveled quite a bit. He had lived in Japan and Venezuela for months at a time. And he wanted to embark on an anthropological expedition to a place few would ever see. So after talking with representatives from the Dutch National Museum of Ethnology, Michael decided to head off to what was then known as Dutch New Guinea. Right. A massive island off the coast of Australia to collect art of the Asmat people who resided there. So by the 1960s, bit of history about Dutch New Guinea at the time, that's what it was called. Dutch colonial authorities and missionaries had already been on the island for almost a decade, but many Asmat people had never seen a white man. So many of the native people actually hadn't seen a white man before. They had very limited contact with the outside world and the Asma people believed that the land beyond their island was actually inhabited by spirits. And white people, when they came across the sea, they saw them... As As like ghosts. Exactly. So, which is understandable if you haven't seen a white man. Yeah. yeah. And and, and even though they were completely oblivious to the history of it, they were dead right to be afraid of the white (laughs) man. It's it's not like there was a lack of intelligence in their fear of the white man. You know what? I think what we've learned here is always go with your gut. Like, that is what we've learned here. (laughs) 
So these guys, it's like, yes. listen, the, every other place these guys have come to has really benefited it's greatly well. for all the indigenous people. It's yeah. Well. <laughs> so Michael Rockefeller and his team of researchers and documentarians um, went off to this village called Ostjanep. Okay, so Ostjanep. Now, Michael had gone off with this gang and they had come over from Harvard and they were filming this kind of documentary in Papua New Guinea. But Michael had kind of blagged his way on this trip because they were looking for a sound guy. Michael was like, I can do sound. He couldn't do sound, but really what he wanted to do was go collect art and bring it back to his dad's museum and really impress his dad with this so he new just, collection. So he just blagged his way onto a production crew? Base, I mean, can you believe it? I know, yes. That was essentially what he did. I mean, when you're a Rockefeller, I think it's pretty easy to blag. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... I'd imagine. The sound guy, very interesting choice. Like, of all, you know, if you're phoning it in, the sound now, I mean, you've already seen me battle with the podcast. <laughs> you know, the last podcast I did, a lot of people got in touch. It was um, with uh, Connor B and he was great. And it was the Prue 2. Do you remember the Prue 2? No. McCain McCollum. Oh, yes. Drug smoking, yes. 2013, Peru. Oh, the, the Peru. Yes. Oh, right. I got you. But the very start, um, I didn't realise I'd left in the edit bit where Connor's like, okay, now clap and we'll both press record. And a few people got in touch to say, I can't believe it's your podcast and people are having to tell you to press record. I'm like, yeah, but like every day is a school day. Anyway, so sound would be my worst nightmare in terms of spoofing. But look, Michael thought he could do it. Went off with this gang. So they arrive at this uh, village called Ostjanep, which is home to one of the major asthma communities on the on the island. And basically the locals kind of put up with the team's photography, which, as you can imagine, was probably quite invasive, you know, for these people. Like, yes. But they did they did put up with it. But they didn't allow the white researchers to purchase cultural art- artefacts like bish poles is the name oh, of them. Yeah. yeah, bish poles, which were essentially like these intricate kind of wooden pillars that serve as part of asthmat rituals and religious rites. So the first village they had gone to, they saw these bish poles and the community quite happily sold these bish poles to Michael. So he obviously wanted to bring these back to New York because they looked like insane. Like they looked fantastic. You know, we had like these human bodies carved into wood, kind of one on top of the other. And I so guess... almost like totem poles. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That kind of vibe. And Michael was really taken with these for obvious reasons. The first village, they were like, we'll sell those to you, no problem. This village, they're not as receptive to it. And I guess part of the reason was, so in this village, the bishop holes were actually outside the homes. So they were encircling the homes. And the whole thing with the bishop holes is they're essentially a catalyst in the mourning period. So the idea is that once the mourning period is complete... You move the bishop holes into the like into the, you know, kind of res- residential area, but if the mourning period isn't complete, the bishop holes are outside the residential. And what's area. the belief? What's the feeling? Like, why does that matter? Well, in their culture. So I guess. Well, it's. I mean, I suppose it's all about. I guess it's. The, I guess it's their relationship to the afterlife, isn't it? Oh, is it? I don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll get to why this was an issue now in a moment. But okay. essentially, they were like, so their mourning period hadn't been completed because these bishops were outside the homes. Okay. So Michael sees these bishops. He thinks they look great. I want to bring them back to New York. He doesn't understand the cultural significance that these represent a journey to the afterlife 
a potential vengeance maybe that there's more to these fish bowls that might meet the eye yes so the reason why they didn't want to sell them and the reason why they didn't want to bring them that, that they hadn't been brought in was because they were put up after the leaders were killed oh. and the mourning process wasn't going to be completed until they had avenged their deaths oh so that's why they didn't want to sell them to michael do you know it's so embarrassing Oh no, tell me. When you were telling me about the mourning thing originally, I I didn't capture that you were talking about mourning a death. Oh, stop. As in M O U O. You just yeah, thought I, know. I was banging I, on I, about yeah. mourning. Well, because, you know, I'm like paying attention to a lot. I, <laughs> I thought it was like a sun thing. I didn't capture that correctly. I, but you know what? I should have said grieving. No, Would no, mourning is, mourning is fine. I just, I just wasn't, I don't know. I just was kind of like, you said they're in the morning and then they bring them in. And oh, I was like, oh, okay. I guess they put that them out. That was confusing. The, it was like a sun thing. My, my bad. No, that's no, my bad. My bad. You're bad. Me bad. Okay. But Michael was not used to hearing the word no. Um, so in the asthma a people. A pushy New Yorker. <laughs> Can you believe it? What's going on over here? So he was determined to bring these back. And he actually eventually convinced them to take a down payment for these bish bowls. And he said, look, I'll be back. What to are they paying in? Very good question. So because they don't deal in actual currency, it's like bartering. Right, so we okay. had things like tobacco, axes, stuff like that. So basically stuff to barter okay. with. So at the time, war between these little villages in Dutch New Guinea, New Guinea was very popular. And Michael learned that Asmat warriors often took off the heads of their enemies and ate their flesh. So this is what we refer to, obviously, as headhunting. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. But the idea behind headhunting... Um, and it's still, you know, practiced in some, obviously to a much lesser extent, but it's still practiced actually by the Asma people in Papua New Guinea and some other places in the world. Um, the head being, of course, the location, these people believe, the location of the soul and the personality. Right. So there's a particular significance to removing a head of an enemy because there's a real tokenism there. Because that's it's supposedly interesting, where... they're probably right. Yeah. Where are the fucking agents that... Think well, it's in our heart. I was gonna say <laughs> or our stomach. I feel it in my soul. And you automatically think of like your sternum. I know. Well, listen. But it's all happening in the brain. When you think about it, I mean, yeah. I, so that the, you can see where they're coming from for sure. I feel it in my gut. <laughs> <laughs> so he so basically got really interested in this whole process. And in certain regions, asthmat men would engage in ritual homosexual sex and in bonding rites, and sometimes they would even drink each other's urine. And this was whole the whole part of the headhunting process. Right, like okay. it was, you know, it was a whole thing. Um, the initial scouting mission concluded and Michael Rockefeller was energized. He wrote out all these plans of what he wanted to do with the Asmat art, etc. And in terms of bringing it back to New York. So Michael Rockefeller, this is the end of September in 1961. He went back to this village where he had put down the down payment for the Bish Bowls. And these people were nowhere to be found. They'd essentially stood him up. So kind of scammed him basically for but these bishops. Did he bows. give them money already? He'd already given like given the, them the goods. Like, yeah. yeah, given them the goods. So that's just something to note that they had scammed him a bit, but okay, whatever, you know, would you blame them? But yeah. that, so that's just something to note. What's well, good for the goose is good for the gander exactly. in terms of this cultural appropriation. Exactly. So they're, they're finishing up. They have like a rap party, for want of a better word, on this project. So these guys from Harvard who've been filming the documentary, Michael, they're all there having a great time. When Michael 
gets a telegram to say that his dad, Nelson, and his mother, Mary, are divorcing. And his dad is planning to remarry. So clearly there's been an overlap because he's planning to remarry already. So Michael flies back to New York and immediately, I suppose, kind of comes into conflict with his siblings because he's quite sympathetic to his dad. And the siblings are like, no, 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 we are team mom all the way. Wow. This is bullshit. Like the, the real... The Real Housewives of uh, I'm the Rockefellers, you. the original Roni. The, oh my God, I love Roni so much. So he says, look, do you know what? This is proving to be a bit of a headache. And he decides to set out once again for New Guinea in 1961. So in November, he sets off again. And the, of course, like the thing with New Guinea was like based on Michael's letters, he writes about it in such glowing terms. Like he talks about his eyes being opened and the Western world now being a place in his eyes of cultural bankruptcy. And he really just falls in love with this place. And also there was probably an element based on, you know, the extracts of letters that I've read. I think definitely, I guess being out there and not being a Rockefeller, Mm. you know, he's out there, he's making his own mark. He's doing his own thing. It must have been quite liberating for him as well. And he's young. You know, you're kind of, you know. it's exciting. It's the adventure time in your life. Adventure, exciting, all that. So he heads out for New Guinea again. And, And, you know, listen, who doesn't feel liberated watching men fuck each other before (laughs) beheading, you know? And drinking each other's urine. And drinking each other's piss and beheading people. I mean, listen. Washing it down. If if that doesn't help you to grow as a human being. The day that you're at a headhunting ceremony and you're scrolling on your iPhone (laughs) is the day that you've given up on life. (laughs) So, yes. I mean, safe to say there's, you know, there's a lot happening. So he heads out again and he's, so he's now quite bolstered by his previous trip. He's like, I want to add to my art collection. I'm bringing back this unbelievable collection to my dad. This museum is going to be off the charts. So he goes back all guns blazing, but minus the film crew that he had worked with before. On his own? Has he brought an entourage? He's gone on his own. And the Dutch, of course, let's face it, there's a Rockefeller, like within your jurisdiction, you want to look after them. So they're like, look, obviously because the nature of the terrain it's very swampy so in order to get around these little villages in New Guinea like you have to you know have a boat it's very swampy very hard to navigate so they're like look we have a guy he's a Dutch guy his name is Rene Vazing and he is a government anthropologist he's 34 and he's going to be your guide so they head off and this guy, Rene, initially they're going around in the boat and Michael, because he's young, he's impatient, he's, you know, enthusiastic. He's like, this boat is too slow. We, slow. we need a motorized boat. So Renee's like, okay, if you're sure, but I mean, it's very swampy. Like we don't know how it's going to go. So they get a secondhand boat and they also have two local teenage guys called Simon and Leo. And they're all on the boat. So they're going... Dutch. Um, they're actually, they're local guys. And the names interested me because I'm not sure... Was that maybe names? Yeah, I'm sure I mean, they're just like westernized names. I that, was going to yeah. say like just like, which like is really Leo a, from China. I, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. That like it was it was just kind of westernized or you know nicknames yeah. that the Dutch gave them. So the two teenage guys are with them, and they're heading off. And again, you know, so they're they're going around, and they're collecting a lot of art. There's a lot of art on the boat. The boat is really under pressure now, and Renee is telling. Michael, you need to calm it on the art. And Michael's like, no, no, no. I just want to pick up as many artifacts as possible. The 19th of November, 
a sudden tide kind of comes along, a bit of a riptide. The boat capsizes and Michael and Renee are clinging to like the roof of the boat. So Simon and Neo have decided they ha- there's petrol cans on the boat. They attach petrol cans and they say, we're going to swim to shore. Michael and Renee are on this boat. And weirdly, Renee is not a confident swimmer, which seems a bit strange if you're, you know, essentially spending all your life on a boat. But Well, look, that used to be the thing. I know, actually, now that you say it. Yeah, yeah. it was a superstition thing, wasn't yeah. it? So they're about 10 miles from the shore. And Michael says, look, I think I can make it. He ties petrol cans onto his body, jumps into the water, and he's never seen again. Oh. So obviously, Michael's family... At this point, so he disappears. Simon and Neo, the next day, it turns out they did make it to shore. They swam to shore and they alert the the Dutch Air Force. The Dutch Air Force come along and they rescue Renee. But what's interesting about this is they can't find Michael anywhere. Now, the Dutch Air Force at the time had this really intense radar, which could sense bodies in the water. But they can't find, like, they're looking, they're looking. They're, I mean, it's a Rockefeller in the water. You want to find him, they can't find him anywhere. So they pick Renee up. They ask Renee what happened. Renee is like, he swam off. I watched him swim off. He was going in the direction of the shore. They think to themselves, okay, like, maybe this is a drowning. But then the fact that they couldn't see him in the water is problematic. Obviously, they let Nelson know that his son is missing. So Nelson and his daughter, Mary, Michael's twin sister, they fly to New Guinea and they're fully sure they're going to find Michael. Like they're very positive. There's a media frenzy, a lot of reporters, but they're being very positive about it. They land in New Guinea and they're taken to meet Renee, the guide. Yes. Mary would later say that she found Renee to be nervous. She thought he kept looking at the Dutch representatives in the room to see almost, Mm. she felt that he was almost like second guessing himself. Like, you know, am I saying the right thing? Yes. And Renee was giving the impression, I would say he probably drowned. So they're kind of thinking, okay. And then somebody throws out the possibility that because he's young, he loves adventure. He's fallen in love with New Guinea. Could he have decided to start a new life in New Guinea? Wow. And Mary straight away says, there's no way my twin brother would do that without letting me know. Like, that's just not a possibility. And why would he fill up a boat with artifacts first? Yeah, I mean, it's not, yeah, no. So the weird thing is, nine days of searching, they cannot find anything barred. They do find a petrol can. And Renee says, it does look like the petrol can that Michael took with him, but I can't be sure it's just a petrol can, obviously. So nine days, after only nine days, the Dutch conclude there is, wait for this, this was the quote, there is no longer any hope of finding Michael Rockefeller alive. Oh, right, okay. Nelson and Mary head back. Two weeks later, the Dutch call off the search and his official cause of death is deemed drowning. Obviously, this this whole case is a media sensation. There is rumours at this stage that Michael has actually been eaten by cannibals. Oh, which feeds right into the whole... So the rumour comes from, there is, so there is a missionary, a local priest, no, sorry, not a local priest, but a Dutch priest, a local missionary, and his name is Van Kessel. And he goes to the village of Ocheneb. So do you remember the guys that scammed Michael? Yes. Because what he has copped is that when this search is going on for the two weeks, everyone is out, all the natives are out looking for this guy, except this village. Nobody in this village 
has come out to look for Michael. Interesting. In fact, when the helicopters are overhead, they run from the helicopter. Like, they seem quite freaked out by the whole thing. They're not... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Getting involved. Von Kessel goes and he is asking them, you know, what happened? He's got a local guide with him. And he said, people aren't forthcoming. And at one stage, a young man runs around the village shouting, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything, which is a bit of a, what we call a red flag, Des. Yes. In the true crime world. So a few but, days later. But we don't yes. know if he's referring to the fact that they scammed Michael Rockefeller. Well, yeah. We don't know what he's referring to. Very true. So a few days later, this guy who had seemed, bless him, you know, quite freaked out by it all, he comes to Von Kessel with a friend of his and he tells Von Kessel what happened. He says that a group of men from the village were in a boat. They saw what they thought was a crocodile and it was actually Michael Rockefeller swimming backstroke. So they brought Michael into the boat and they killed him. And then he was cannibalized. This is what the guys say. Now, Von Kessel, obviously with this information, he notifies the authorities to say, this is what I've been told is what happens. So the authorities now, all this back and forth, we've got like secret documents. It's top secret. They don't want anyone to kind of find out about this. Um, so they tell them, listen, that's just a story. There's absolutely no basis whatsoever in that. So just disregard that. Don't tell anyone. And would it, would it have been normal for them to be... Because the, the drowning, quote unquote, happened in the Pacific, yeah? It wasn't yes. in a swampy area. It was actually out in the... Well, it was a swampy area, I think. But you said 10 miles from shore, right? Yes. So I sp- oh, sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, probably just would have been too. It, yeah. it, it, was, it was between 10 and 12 miles, they said. All right. So were, were they hopping between like the islands of Dutch yeah. New Guinea? Is that what it... Oh, okay, okay. So, so it would be normal for other boats to be out there in the... Yeah. 
in the, the sea? Well, I guess the thing is, the thing with the drowning was the main thing that people had a problem. People had a problem with that because of the radar, that the radar yes. did not pick up because it wasn't a huge area. But what I'm saying is it wouldn't have been odd for that village to be out in that part of the sea and have no, found him. no. Absolutely not, no. And like, so there, so apparently according to this guy, what had happened was, was that they were coming along in the boat and the name they had for white people was Twan. And they said, you're always taught, one of the guys in the boat said apparently to another guy in the boat, you're always talking about how you want to head hunt to Twan and here, here's your chance. So they bring him into the boat and according to this guy and his friend, they were quite reluctant to kill him. Like that there was a bit of back and forth and then they decided, look, we're just committed now. They killed him and he was cannibalised. Now... A hate crime. A hate crime. <laughs> so the, the two Dutch missionaries... So the, the two Dutch missionaries on the island, they t- tell the local authorities what they had heard from the Asmat. A police officer is sent to investigate the crime the following year and he came to the same conclusion and Wayford even produced a skull that the Asmat said belonged to Michael Rockefeller. The Dutch very quickly got rid of the skull. Oh, Got rid of the DNA evidence. Got rid of the skull. And then any documentation with these missionaries between the local authorities and the police were placed in classified files, buried, not to be further investigated. The media then get in touch with the Rockefellers because we all know the media can be, you know, they're not always the most sensitive, sensitive people. They got in touch to say, what do you think of this news that Michael was eaten? by cannibals in New Guinea. And the entire time, the Rockefellers just did not engage. They were very, matter. they just used their lawyer and said, we are, you know, thank you for getting in I touch, mean, no and the, comments. The funny thing is that the eating thing is so, so sensationalist because in actual fact, it all happens after he dies anyway. Exactly. It's kind of irrelevant. Yes, and the, the guy and the friend... But they like that story. Exactly. And the guy and the friend had said that, like the issue, and again, you know, it is obviously a cultural thing. No part of the body is wasted. So his his bones were sharpened into daggers. His head obviously was taken as a token, according to these guys, and, and you know, placed in a home of one of these guys who had killed him. Um, obviously then, you know, parts of his body are eaten. Like, they use every bit of the body, yeah. basically. So by 1962, the Dutch were in kind of, they were in a tricky position. So this Rockefeller thing had just happened. They had already lost half of the island to the new state of Indonesia. So they were in a tricky diplomatic position. They did not want a Rockefeller dying. Indonesia was Portuguese, right? Yes. Oh, well done. Very good. Um, So they didn't want... Useless knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be great in a poker quiz, Great in a table quiz, no. So... They didn't want this getting out that on their watch, a Rockefeller was after getting eaten. Like, it's not ideal. So they buried the whole thing. They said, look, there's absolutely no truth to these inve- to these allegations. And Rockefeller, Michael Rockefeller drowned. His family, for understandable reasons, were quite happy to believe that, which I think we all get. Like, nobody wants to imagine their brother, their son has been cannibalized. Yeah. It's a lot easier to think, look, you know, he drowned. Then in 2014, a journalist called Carl Hoffman went back to investigate these 50-year-old claims. He started by traveling to the village Ostnep. He then, you know, he posed, supposedly, I'm here to document the culture of the asthma people, but obviously, you know, was there to investigate the Rockefeller thing. His interpreter overheard a man telling another member of the tribe not to discuss the American tourist who had died there. 
With the interpreter at Hoffman's urging, he asked who the man was and they were told it was Michael Rockefeller. Now, he also learned that the killing of Michael Rockefeller was, this comes back to the Bishop polls, a reprisal in its own right because in 1957, so four years before Rockefeller had visited New Guinea, uh, this conflict had occurred between the Ostianep and the Omadessa villages. So they, as I said, there was a lot of violent conflict between the villages. The Dutch were there and I guess they were, they were interfering in these local disputes. The Dutch sent out Dutch authorities armed with guns. These people had never seen guns before in their life. They went out to, quote, take control of the island and supposedly disarm, you know, the Ostianep tribe. But actually what happened is the Dutch opened fire on the Ostianep and they actually killed four of their Jews, which is their term for war leaders. They killed four of their leaders. Okay. So within that context, the Ostianep tribesmen, when they found Michael Rockefeller, they said to themselves, this is vengeance now. So the white men came and killed four of our leaders. Here's a white man. This is our opportunity. So do you remember the guy who had said, you're always talking about how you'd love to head home to Twan? That was stemming from this idea that they want to, you know, avenge like the killing of their leaders. And why didn't they do it when Rockefeller visited the first time when they wouldn't sell him? Well, that's a good question. I suppose... Maybe it was just opportunity as well, because right. the second time round he was just on swimming his on his own, yeah. Petrocans. The first time round, there's like a film crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on. So they were told then, Hoffman, this journalist, said that long before the village of, you know, it wasn't long before the village itself came to really regret this decision. And obviously the murder of Michael Rockefeller brought like a lot of media coverage to the asthma people, like a lot of, you know, invasive helicopters, all of that, which they found quite terrifying. And obviously many asthma people told the story to Hoffman. No one who took part in the death would come forward. All simply said it was a story that they heard. Then one day Hoffman was in the village shortly before he returned to the US. He saw a man miming a killing as part of the story. Hearing words relating to murder, Hoffman began to film, but the story was, was already over. However, he did catch the end of what this man was saying on film. Don't you tell this story to any other man in the village because this story is only for us. Don't speak. I hope you remember it and you must keep this for us. I hope this is for you and for you only. Don't talk to anyone forever. If people question you, don't answer. Don't talk to them because this story is only for you. If you tell it to them, you'll die. I am afraid you will die. You'll be dead. Your people will be dead. You keep this story in your house to yourself. I hope forever, forever. And ultimately, it is kind of a given now that he was cannibalized, Michael Rockefeller. In 1982, they actually opened a special part of the Met Museum and all this art that they recovered from the boat. Oh, they did recover art. They did recover quite a bit and they also recovered, um, Michael had very intricate, very well-kept journals. Obviously, there was a lot of water damage, but they used the journals that they could recover to document the artifacts that they took from the water wow and mary actually you know it was lovely so obviously mary was at the opening for this it was nearly 20 years after her brother had disappeared and she talked about how like 
you know, that his spirit was really in the room and she just felt so close to him, seeing all this stuff, which was so important to him. And I guess, you know, it is kind of a given now that he was cannibalized. The Dutch wanted to bury it for obvious reasons because it just did not look good that a Rockefeller got yes. eight on, the, on, on their watch. The Especially in vengeance for shit they did. Exactly. The missionaries in question, Von Kessel, got sent back to the Netherlands. They were forbidden from traveling to the USA. Um, forbidden from contacting the Rockefellers directly. But I mean, the next missionary who came was told this story by the locals. It was an, it was kind of an open secret yeah. in New Guinea. And, you know, the Rockefellers themselves have always subscribed to the initial story, which was that he was drowned, drowned for obvious reasons. And I guess what's particularly sad about this story is, I think you look at Michael and you think he loved this culture so much and maybe in all his youthful, enthusiastic naivety, he really wanted to bring this culture to the world. But ultimately, this culture is kind of what cost him his life in, in a way. Yeah, and ultimately you know, it's, 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 it's like they tragic. didn't really want to. Yeah. It's like that story of the, do you remember the story of the guy that went to that island where it was basically, don't, don't go to that island, you'll yes. be killed? Was that seven or eight years ago? Yeah. And people were like, yeah, well, you know, you weren't supposed to go, but he went and... And you see, it is that thing of, again, and I think when you're younger, you know, there is that maybe naivety to it all that like, it is exactly that, isn't it? You think, oh, I need to go because this culture, we need to bring these artifacts, this culture, this art to the world. But not not everyone necessarily wants to do that. But listen, in terms of scorekeeping between uh, Europeans and then later on, obviously, Americans who are basically Europeans in this context... The score between that people and indigenous people around the world is very much oh, yeah. uh, a gazillion <laughs> to about five. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And like also, I think it's like what you said. It's very interesting that this, you know, killing was very much a reaction to an incident which happened where the Dutch opened fire on pe- like local people who had never seen guns before in their life. Like, I mean... Yeah, it, no, I mean, listen, you, you wouldn't rationalise rea- any of this, but the reality is that, I mean, indigenous people suffer greatly from colonialism. Oh, for sure. And this is, a, this is also a very sad story about a man who probably didn't quite understand the peril he was putting himself into. With, I, I'm pretty sure he had quite a noble desire to share oh, well their art. Oh, yeah. But I think it's kind of a a naive misunderstanding of whether you have any right to be there at all. I know. And, you know, it is that thing of it's, you know, again, he, I'm sure he was very well intentioned, but it's, it's, a, it is a very tragic story for, for sure. It really is. And actually even for Mary, obviously his twin sister who felt his death, I'm sure more than anyone else, when she returned, uh, there was an anecdote where she went to her mom and she was bawling her eyes out, obviously, because they had come back without Michael and they really did not expect that that's what was going to happen. And her mother told her, you cannot cry. Whatever else you do now, we cannot cry because they're under such media scrutiny. So again, that almost kind of like, I imagine, you know, stiff upper lip, nearly, yeah. you know, that they had to. Be- Sad. Because they essentially were kind of New York royalty, the they Rockefellers, were. were they? Absolutely, absolutely. And... Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of films and different things you watch. Yeah, yeah. Show all that. Sad. Also unnecessary. It's, but it is what it is. I, I, I'll obviously never understand growing up under that level of scrutiny. I know, but it's, it's just you know, it is sad for everyone. And you know, the fact that then she was so happy when all this art was finally placed in the Met in 1982. And I guess you know, it is a nice way to keep Michael's legacy alive as well. And that is the story. 
Fascinating. The disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. I was going to say the disappearance of Michael Fassbender. Michael Rockefeller. I don't know why I just suddenly thought Fassbender. How did he come into my head? I don't know. Have you seen Shame? Oh, stop. <laughs> my God. Do you know the funniest story I think about Shame? You know when he talks about on Graham Norton, his mom and his auntie going to see Shame and Tralee Omniplex. That always makes me laugh. Because Michael's a Killarney boy. I know. He's um, got a cock out. Oh, my God. Do you know I never saw that? Is really? it a good film? Shame? Yeah. I mean, it's a very good film. It's a very interesting sort of... Uh, Look at a man sort of like deep in his own self-obsession, sex addiction. Sex addiction. He is a brilliant actor, isn't he, Michael? It's good. Uh, I enjoyed Shame, though, I have to say. I must check it out. Okay, so I'm going to go off and check that out now. Thank you so much, Des. Thank you for I having really me. I appreciate I'm, I'm, it. I'm fascinated. You know, it was a very, very interesting learning experience. Because, you know, Nelson Rockefeller as a governor is controversial. You know, he's the one that brought in the Rockefeller laws, which people believe was kind of like... Tell race. me about those. Well, I, 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 I have not been researching okay. Needless to say, uh, very, very strict laws uh, for uh, people who were um, charged with drug crime. And, uh, you know, uh, former, uh, former ex-felons were not allowed to meet up in groups of more than three. And wow. Actually, would you believe, was actually like a problem for the creation of Narcotics Anonymous because originally Narcotics Anonymous <gasps> meetings in New York were essentially illegal because they were uh, against the Rockefeller laws because it was more than the amount of people convicted of drug crimes meeting in a group. That is uh, so interesting, So they, 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 they were quite... I mean, it was very much in the sort of war on drugs sort of mm -hmm. story. The Rockefeller laws are, are a big chapter in the war on drugs story. And they really helped to imprison a lot of black and Hispanic people in New York. So was that kind of, oh no, maybe I'm trying, no, I'm sure this is not the case. But you know, Bill Clinton with his three strikes That's in your the, Yeah, that was, that was later. Well, the Rockefeller laws were the 70s, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Oh, though. yeah. For, but I'm saying, would that kind of have been paving the way for that three strikes in your right? Or that's a completely different thing? I mean, that came at a time where being tough on crime was very much the sort of political, mm -hmm. you know, popular political thing. Uh, so the three strikes uh, was, you know, post Rudy Giuliani cleaning up New York. And even Biden, if you go back and you look at Biden's track record, a lot of those politicians, particularly like centrist Democrat politicians, were pushing tough on crime agendas. Mm -hmm. So three strikes had kind of similar effects to the Rockefeller because it's, laws. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you remember when he was elected, Maya Angelou called him the first black president of the United States, Who, Bill, Clinton. Bill Clinton? Right. And then it's so, there's just a real tragic irony to the fact that he was responsible for so many black men getting sent away for life. That's for, right whatever, like small bit of weed or whatever it was. Yeah, like it silly, just, like three yeah. small, three small uh, charges, you know, but then yeah. that's it, three strikes, you're out. But that was just California. Do you know, that'd be a great crime land, actually, looking at that whole... Do it. Look at, you can do a series of the war on drugs, or you can just do one episode on the three strikes rule. I think, was it the criminal justice bill? I don't know. They, they, it comes up a lot because, yeah. you know, that came up a lot with Biden. There, and, and I was going to say, actually, a, a few Netflix documentaries. It's interesting, you know, when you watch these documentaries on, like, you know, the incarcerated population mm. of America, it always goes back to that, the three strikes. Oh, the right, three yeah, strikes. Yeah. But that's, just, that's California. Okay. That, that okay. wasn't a federal thing. That was just, the, that was the state of California. It was just California. Yeah. Yeah. The three strikes is California. Oh, I thought it was a federal thing. I, I'm happy to... I'll, I'll, no, 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 listen, I'll stand tense. corrected, but I'm pretty sure it was just California, but I I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Cal so that was a Cal it was a state law. Okay, thanks, Des. You're the best. Thank you.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 